if some of you have been listening to some of the recent podcast episodes uh, where I've been interviewing some people. One of the guys who's been on there numerous times is a guy named Zach Bird, and uh, Lord willing, Zach will make it up here actually in April to come preach. And one thing that Zach has said, and, and it's not originating from him, we heard this a lot in seminary, that uh, a, a healthy pastor is always doing three things, preaching, praying, and pastoring. A big reason why we pray a lot in corporate worship is because God's church is a house of prayer, that's what Jesus calls it. But it's not only a house of prayer, it's also a house of faith. We don't merely pray to God, but we have faith that he hears us. And that he answers us in the things that are according to his will. And I love, it reminds me of a quote from a pastor in the UK named William Still. And he once said this, I never preach without expecting that something will happen which will last for eternity. Think about that. Every single time, regardless of who's preaching, if it's faithful to the word of God, every time the word is preached, do you believe that something will happen in your heart that will last for eternity. That's what preaching is. With that in mind, let me invite you to open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 2. Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, a very famous Christmas text. One that we do well to come back to over and over and over. Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. In assembling all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, quoting Micah, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. 
Father, we're asking that you would send the Spirit, that he might cause us to be born again. We do ask that you would bring new life to people this morning. And for those of us who have been born again, whether recently or or long ago, we ask that you would further the work that you have begun in us. Only you can do that. And we trust that this is your means of grace. So help us to worship you through this humble act of preaching. We ask all this, Lord Jesus, in your name. Amen. Everyone bows down to a king. The question is, which one? David Foster Wallace, in his very famous commencement speech in 2005, maybe some of you have heard this quoted before, but I think it's worth quoting at length. He said this, Everything in my own immediate experience supports my deep belief, he's, he's uh, analyzing our current culture at the time, it supports my deep belief that I am the absolute center of the universe, the realest, most vivid, and important person in existence. We rarely talk about this sort of natural, basic self-centeredness because it's so, so- socially repulsive. But it's pretty much the same for all of us deep down. It is our default setting. It's hardwired into our brains at birth. Think about it. There is no experience that you've had that you were not at the absolute center of. The world as you experience it is right there in front of you or behind you. It's to the left of you or the right of you. It's on your TV or or your monitor or whatever. Other people's thoughts and feelings have to be communicated to you somehow, but your own are so immediate, urgent, real. In other words, you get the idea. He goes on to say, in the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. It's a bold statement. There is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. The point that David Foster Wallace is getting at there is this. We are all worshipers. And many of us are worshiping self. Now if that was true in 2005, how much more true is it today in 2023 on the verge of 2024? We drink down the waters of self all the time. We are constantly being told, you do you, and I'll do me. You do what makes you happy. You follow your heart. It's on our TVs. It's on social media. It's in our music. It's in our common speech. Everything in our culture today is proclaiming, you bow down to yourself. We're all bowing down to something. The question is, who is your king? Is it yourself? Or is it someone else? We actually see this very thing, this very theme here in this text. Everyone is bowing down to a king. The question is, which one? Let's look first at King Herod. And what we can ask with King Herod, the question we can ask about ourselves is this. Are you bowing down to yourself? 
You see that Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king. Let me give you a little bit of historical context of who Herod is. And I'm going to show you uh, how this really helps us understand who he was. One person says, Herod the Great achieved power in Judea with Roman backing. Herod brutally suppressed all opposition. Herod, and maybe you've heard this name, he was a friend of Mark Antony. But unfortunately, an enemy of Mark Antony's, uh, he was an enemy of uh, Cleopatra. Talk about that weird dynamic. Now, what happened at a certain point in time, when Octavian Caesar, who was also named Augustus, when he defeated Mark Antony and Cleopatra, well, who was Herod going to submit to? He submitted to Caesar. Herod promised that he would be no less loyal to Caesar as he had been loyal to Mark Antony and Cleopatra, or at least Mark Antony. Herod named cities for Caesar. He built temples in his honor. Ethnically, Herod was an, uh, an, an Edomite, which I'll show you how that is helpful for later. He was an Edomite. Herod had reportedly, when people were in opposition of him, he had killed members of the Sanhedrin that opposed him, and he replaced them with his own political supporters. How about that? So much did Herod crave honor and power that it is said that when he was on his deathbed, he ordered many nobles to be arrested. Here's why. He thought that if many people were executed on the day that he died, he could ensure that there would be mourning rather than celebration at his death. You talk about an egomaniac. In part of the context and connecting with some of the studies of that day and thinking about uh, uh, astronomy and the stars. One person says, it was also widely believed that comets and other heavenly signs predicted the demise of rulers. So imagine for Herod, when, whenever people are, these guys coming from the east saying, we've seen this star of the new king, imagine how threatened Herod would have felt. And so for reasons when they would hear about things like this, rulers would reportedly execute other members of the elite so that hopefully their deaths would be the fulfillment of the predicted demise. In other words, how do you think Herod felt? This egomaniac, this person who was bowing down to the idol of self, how do you think he felt when these magi, these wise men came to him saying, We've come to worship the king of the Jews, and it's not you. How do you think he felt? Well, no doubt, as makes sense, in verse 3 it says he was troubled. He was so troubled that he even called the entire assembly of the chief priests and the scribes to inquire, saying, is this real? Where is this taking place? And we know why he was doing that. We actually see in verses 16 through 18, that Herod wanted to find out where this child was so that he could kill the child. Look at verse 16. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, he became furious and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem. That is what we do whenever we feel like our idol is being threatened. We'll do anything to lash out. 
we see that he would do anything to protect the idol of self. He was a tyrant king. But we also know this, that behind every tyrant king and behind every influence to idolize self is the ultimate tyrant, Satan himself. We know in the very beginning, Satan so despised the Lord that he went down to the first man and first woman, Adam and Eve, and he tempted them to take the fruit and to eat of it so that they would be like God. He wanted them not to bow down to God, but to bow down to self. He wanted to do anything he could to separate God from man. He was successful in his plan, and the fall happened. That's why sin is in this world. And we know when God was pronouncing the curse, he also gave the first promise of the gospel in Genesis 3.15, where when God was pronouncing the curse to Satan, he said this, I will put enmity between you and the woman, talking about Eve, and between your offspring and her offspring. Now, talking about the offspring who would come from Eve, he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. In that first proclamation of the gospel, in real world history, that has been the storyline of all things everywhere. The godly line versus the ungodly line. God sending, doing everything he can to send his son to crush Satan. How do you think Satan would respond to that? What he has been doing for all of world history, he has been doing anything he can to disrupt God's plan. What's so crazy about his tactics is that he knows God's the sovereign. He knows he's the king. He knows he's undefeated. He, he can't do anything to stop God, but he will do all that he can to affect our experience of that salvation. Don't miss what was happening 2,000 years ago in real world history. Who was the biggest influence behind Herod trying to kill Jesus? Satan. Satan has always been trying to mess up God's plan. Even the first children that Adam and Eve have, you saw that murder entered in when Cain murdered Abel. Even in the book of Exodus, tell me if this sounds familiar, there was the birth of Moses and Pharaoh who wanted to make sure he stayed in power. He, he ordered a decree that the Hebrew midwives, uh, if, if the Hebrew women bore a son, they were ordered by Pharaoh to kill all those sons because he didn't want Israel to get so big where they could free themselves. See, Satan doesn't really have many different plans. He really has a couple of plans. He just repackages them in different ways. All throughout the history of God's people, Satan has tried to do anything he can to tempt them to worship foreign gods. He's tried to threaten them with enemy kingdoms. He's tried to manipulate and heighten the people's sin and lure them into idolatry. And you see that here with 
Herod, that behind the scenes, not like Herod, Herod is demon-possessed, but behind the scenes is someone who is doing all he can to prevent God's salvation. This should not sound weird or crazy. This is the reality. Paul says in Ephesians 6 verse 12, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. It is more crazy to think that Satan is not real. It's more crazy to think that merely just as you look at all of world history and how we are in this very small portion post-enlightenment who somehow has wanted to do all that we can to ignore the spiritual. It is evident, it is very clear in our experience and in Scripture itself that the spiritual is real and that Satan is doing all that he can to hinder God's people from being saved and to experience their salvation. He cannot take away your salvation, but he does all that he can to try to destroy your experience of that. Now, how does that connect with this text? What is his chief tactic? It is to get you and me to bow down to self rather than God. And I'll show you how. The very first temptation in Genesis 3 verse 5 says this. Satan says, For God knows that when you eat of the fruit, your eyes will be opened, and here it is, and you will be like God. My friends, behind every single sin of yours and mine is us wanting to be God. That's it. He wants us to bow down to self. We see that flooding our day today. It's always flooded the history of the world. It's just been repackaged in new ways. But it does seem a little peculiar today how billboarded it is. There is the tyranny of self, we could call it. One of the ways in which we see this is the massive amount of obsession over personality profiles. One article has said, each year approximately 100 million workers take some form of a personality test. Personality testing has grown into a billion dollar industry. Here's what another article says, personality testing is expected to be, six point, to be worth $6.5 billion in 2027. Now, is it wrong to take a personality test? No, I'm not saying that. But I think it is showing how obsessed we are with self because we're constantly doing this over and over and over and over because we think that if I can just know me, then somehow all my problems will be made right. Very interesting, in the same timeline, we've seen the astronomical rise of self-help books. One article says that uh, in 2020 alone, there were uh, over 45,000 new self-help books published. 
In 2023, this article says, the self-help e-book market was expected to reach $972 million. The life coaching industry is estimated to be worth more than $1 billion in the U.S. We even see this with a lot of modern therapy. One historian, Brooks Holyfield, says this, talking about the story of really the last 100 to 200 years in America when it comes to counseling and therapy. He says this, the story proceeds from the ideal of self-denial to one of self-love, from self-love to self-culture, from self-culture to self-mastery, from self-mastery to self-realization within a trustworthy culture, and finally to a later form of self-realization Uh, that is against cultural mores and social institutions. In other words, what Holyfield is expressing in his book is that we have done everything we can to move people to worship self, and we call that counseling and therapy. Our culture is often saying things like this, as one person put on Facebook some time ago, they were commenting on someone and they said, thank you for constantly pointing me back to myself. Do you hear the hissing in that and the slithering in that? Do all that you can to say yes to yourself and if anyone gets in the way, then say no to them. We see this even in the sports world with Uh, One guy, one wide receiver named Antonio Brown, happened a couple years ago. Listen to this. He said at his retirement, he said this, My biggest regret is that I'll never be able to see me, Antonio Brown, play a football game in person. I can watch the game afterwards, but I can't imagine what that was like for you all to to see what it was like for me to play. It must have been like watching the Beatles or Jesus perform at Red Rocks. That is nuts. But this is the world that we live in. It's not always this obvious. But it's often the more subtle kinds that are most threatening. Because what we will also do, even in churches, is that we will say, unless Jesus gives me satisfaction, then I'm not going to worship him. Or what I'll do is this. I will manipulate God to make him agree with me. We are always bowing down to the idol of self. We're like the selfish shepherds and Ezekiel 34 verse 2, ah, shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourselves when you should have been feeding the flock. Paul says to Timothy to stay on guard against false teaching that will happen in the last days. And he says in 2 Timothy 3 verses 1 through 2, but understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. And here's his first marker of a time of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self. James 3, verse 16 says, For where there is jealousy and selfish ambition, there will be disorder and every vile practice. 
is that not maybe the most succinct cultural commentary of our times right now? For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. Are you bowing down to yourself? But there's another type of bowing down that's equally dangerous. Not only are you bowing down to yourself, but we could also say this. Are you bowing down to your shelf? What I mean here is this. What's on our shelf? Well, if you go in my office, you'll, on the shelf, you will see books. Books are things that inform us. And I'm trying to keep a little bit of a, uh, alliteration here. But what I'm trying to say here is this. Not only do we struggle with bowing down to self, but we love to bow down to all those different things that are giving us information. Books, podcasts, social media, all these different things. Whatever informs our worldview. We love to bow down to those things in and of themselves rather than God. We see this here in the text. Herod had called the chief priests and the scribes together. And these chief priests and scribes, they would have known their Bibles. They would have been Bible experts. But did you notice this? Did any of them go to look for the Messiah? Who their scriptures were proclaiming had come. Notice that these chief priests and scribes were bowing down to their shelf rather than to who, who was being talked about in the Bible. They wanted to stay in their comfort zone. They wanted to have their place of power. And I think it is a reminder that we can bow down to our religious shelf and not bow down to Christ. We do need to be reminded that we can read our Bibles, we can know the contents of our Bible, and we can memorize Bible verses, we can talk about theology, we can teach theology, and yet we can still be bowing down to something or someone other than Jesus. And oftentimes, these are the most hard-hearted people in the room. This type of religious self-righteousness is kind of like when you're driving at night and you get really angry because when someone's driving towards you in the other lane, you see their lights. And what do you do? You, you flash your brights, but you forget your lights are shining on them too. This type of religious self-righteous person, they often think they're the smartest in the room. They feel like they must express their opinion about everything under the sun. Others can't correct these people unless this person, unless I, as the religious self-righteous person, if I, I, I will not accept your correction until I know that you've read or studied or listened to more podcasts than me. I will also have the posture that, of course, others are clearly not doing as much ministry as me. And I will often try to make myself the center of the church. And this type of person, what we will also do is we will demand positions of leadership. 
all because we're bowing down to our religious ideology rather than the Christ who is proclaimed in Scripture. It reminds me of one of my seminary professors who has in his library, at least, at, at least from what I remember him saying, he has around 100 books that he inherited from this young lady one time. When he was a young man who was thinking about going to seminary and entering into the ministry, he met this young lady who she knew a lot of theology. She talked a lot of theology. She was constantly trying to tell people about Jesus and constantly telling people to tell people about Jesus. If someone seemed like the real deal who had all these things together, it seemed like it was her. Until one day, when this young lady was getting ready to graduate from the university, her dad said, look, I will buy you a house if you'll just give up this whole Christianity thing. And she did. And that's why Derek Thomas has so many of those books, books, many of which are the types of books that we would have in our office, great books. It wasn't like she had bad theology. We often bow down to our religious shelves, but we also can bow down to our irreligious shelves. These are other forms of books or podcasts or social media or influencers that maybe they can speak some truth here and there, but uh, very much we bow down to them and everything they say and we are not having a biblical worldview. We often can run to people and we treat these people or news sources as our highest authority like Joe Rogan or Jordan Peterson or CNN or Washington Post. And no matter how much truth there is in those, what we do, and this is what's happening today, we're bowing down to these ideologies and we're saying, this is my highest authority. We're often like what happened in Turkey in 2005 when one sheep jumped to its death and followed by that one sheep, one after one after one, 1,500 others jumped off. And we are often so buried with our heads at our phones, drinking down everything that comes across whatever media form, and we are saying, this is what I will treat as my reality, as my highest truth, rather than God's word. And the church is not immune. You see, what this text is really confronting us with is this. It is one thing to know about theology. And it is one thing to say that you want to have a biblical worldview. But it's a whole other thing to bow down to the God that the Bible is presenting to you. Amen? And that takes a miracle. We are all, regardless of whether you say you're more right or more left or whatever it might be, we are all meant to conform our lives to the book, the Bible. The Bible is certainly not the only book that we read, but it should be the overwhelming book that informs our life. We need to be sometimes like David Livingstone, who's a famous missionary, and he was starting his trek across Africa. And when he had started 
his journey, he had 73 books in three different packs weighing about 180 pounds. Trust me, the story is very convicting to me. Just walk in my office and you'll see why. After their party had traveled about 300 miles, Livingstone, had, uh, he was obliged to throw away some of the books because of the fatigue of carrying those packages. As he continued on his journey across Africa, his library grew less and less until he had only one book left, his Bible. We are drinking down so much information all the time, and yet how little we run to the Bible. Brothers and sisters, we are often bowing down to numerous different types of kings, ideologies, self, whatever it might be. The big question is this, are you bowing down to Jesus? This is what the magi, the wise men, came to do. The wise men, you see there in verse 1, you'll maybe see a footnote there in the Greek, it's actually this word magi, and these Men were people who served the king of Persia. And actually, there is most likely a great connection between, remember Daniel, several hundred years before this, when he was carried away uh, into exile, and they were with uh, Babylon, and then Persia had taken over Babylon. Very interestingly, these magi, you would say, how did they come across this knowledge about how a king of the Jews would be born? Most likely Daniel's influence. Let me give you great encouragement. Daniel was just faithful. That's all he strove to be. And in one of the hardest circumstances, when he was plucked out of his home and when he was taken elsewhere, all he strove to do is just be faithful to God. And look what God did, how he used that over hundreds of years. Never think your influence is too small whenever you're faithful. These magi, they studied, they studied astronomy. I always get mixed up, maybe you do too, between astrology and astronomy. So if I'm using the wrong word, just gently correct me. Uh, astronomy, meaning the study of the stars. Uh, these men studied that. And as they studied this, clearly they had some sort of a biblical worldview. Now, how biblical were they? That's a discussion for another time. But they obviously had this idea that when they saw this star, they knew that God had sent his Messiah. It was clearly so obviously a strange and supernatural event that they traveled hundreds of miles across very dangerous country. In other words, what we see here is something very clearly supernatural. You see, one of the things we often bow down to that's on the shelf is science. When we are looking to science to explain everything, it shows that we are treating science as our greatest authority. And often what is happening is that we are told that the Bible can only make sense if science can explain it. Now, certainly, to be sure, God works within natural laws. Of course he does. He's the one who created them. But he is never bound to them alone. 
And as Christians, we must always learn to have the Bible as our highest authority rather than theories that are often changing. You see, if there is a God who has created all things, and if there is a God who who is sustaining all things, then this moving star is not only possible, but it is probable. If the virgin birth could happen, if God could become man, then how could he not also move a star? If this God can't move a star, or if if he can't do some other supernatural revelation, then can Jesus perform miracles? Can God part the Red Sea? Can he perform the ten plagues? Can he give us inspired and inerrant scripture? Can he cause people to be spiritually born again, or is it merely just some psychological effect? Really the big question, if we can't believe in a moving star or whatever supernatural thing is happening here, if we can't believe that, really the question gets at this. Can you believe that God became man because your whole salvation depends on that? I am a very unpopular preacher this morning. And you know what? Why would God not do something supernatural to proclaim the birth of his son? Amen? One author named Paul Tyson says this, Thankfully, science can see many things very clearly. But while science can see and even manipulate some very important aspects of reality, it remains remarkably blind to other things. Science can see hormones, conditioned social behaviors, and biological necessities, but science cannot see love. Does this mean that Love is only what science can see, and the magic of love is just somehow made up. He goes on to say, if we are modern realists, which is what that position is, and if we make decisions on the basis that really only material, physical things exist, then we will not take values and meanings very seriously. Why does it matter if you're just a mass of chemicals? Brothers and sisters, either God became man or none of this matters. Matter of fact, as Christians, the Bible demands of us that whenever we come to science, and we should, and whenever we come to counseling, and we should, whenever we come to history or business or philosophy or art or sports or whatever it might be, which we should, We must always come to it with a biblical worldview to interpret all those things and to learn how to respond to all those things. Amen? We need to make sure that we have the cart and the horse in the proper order. Because what God is doing here in this supernatural revelation and what he's doing with the Magi is this. He is announcing the birth of a ruler. That's actually what magi would do. They would go and they would show up wherever there was a ruler who was born. And it fulfills what God had prophesied way back in Numbers chapter 24 when he says, I see him. He actually does this through an unbelieving prophet, which is so amazing. 
I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. This star, it shall crush the forehead of Moab and break down all the sons of Sheth. Edom, remember that Herod was an Edomite, Edom shall be dispossessed. Seir also, his enemies, shall be dispossessed. Israel is doing valiantly, and one from Jacob shall exercise dominion and destroy the survivors of cities. The incarnation, it was an act of war. And that little bitty baby, at the moment of his conception in the womb of Mary, was the sovereign who had come to save us from our sins. Amen? <laughs> I think it's worth pointing out a couple more things. Notice from what direction these men came. It says in verse 1, they came from the east. Do you remember at the end of Genesis 3, whenever Adam and Eve were kicked out of the Garden of Eden because of their sin, they were kicked out which direction? East. Don't you see what was happening with Jesus? Because of Jesus, he's bringing the people who were cast out east to come back to God. Not only that, but these magi were obviously, they were Gentiles. God is fulfilling the Abrahamic covenant saying not merely Jewish people, Abraham, not merely people from your ethnic line, your natural line, but the nation shall come in. God is fulfilling all of his promises with this baby. And what's amazing is that these magi are seeing more clearly who the identity of this child is more than the people who had studied the Old Testament for their whole life. Because here's the thing, my friends. Unless you are born again, you will never be able to enter the kingdom of God. We see that when they bring to him gold, frankincense, and myrrh, it fulfills Isaiah 60 and Psalm 72, which says that gifts would be brought to this king. And my friends, what we need to see with the Magi, what we need spiritual eyes to see, is that Jesus is the true king. Jesus is worth worshiping. Literally, that's where the word worship comes from. Worthship, ascribing worth to him. And that's who you're called to bow down to. And all your family members who are coming in town or where you're going to. The children that we will have, the friends that we will meet. Everyone, everywhere, all the time is called to worship this one king. Because that's who he is. And this king, as Micah 5 says, that he is the shepherd. And unlike Herod, he will actually lead you in green pastures and beside still waters. Maybe even into still water. He is not a tyrant. He's the Lord of glory who brings salvation. David Foster Wallace finishes up his graduation commencement speech. 
by saying this. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life from, then they will never be enough. You'll never have enough. You'll never feel you have enough, and that's the truth. Worship your own body or your beauty or your sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you. If you worship power, you will feel weak and afraid, and you will need ever more power over others to keep your fear at bay. Worship your intellect being seen as smart. You'll end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out, and so on and so on. And the world will not discourage you from op- operating on these default settings. Because the world of men and money and power hums along quite nicely on the fuel of fear and contempt and frustration and the worship of self. Our own present culture has harnessed these forces in ways that have yielded extraordinary wealth and comfort and personal freedom. The freedom to be lords over our own tiny skull-sized kingdoms alone at the center of all creation. Is that really the life you want to have? When the holiday at sea is offered to you, when the king of glory has come down to die for sins, when God himself who is infinite has said, I will give myself to you. My friends, the call for you this morning is to bow down and worship Jesus. The king of glory the shepherd of your soul, the very reason why Christmas is here. Let's pray. Our Father, we are asking that you would create the faith in us that is necessary for our salvation. Lord, we often need to be woken up by your word to see where our hearts really lie. Because only you can give us what we're really looking for. And unless you transform us, Lord Jesus, we will always search for those things elsewhere when really they're only in you. So would you save us? We ask all this, Lord Jesus, in your name. Amen.